Who doesn't like Jimmy Stewart? I mean, he's got some of the best movies of all time, including The Shop Around the Corner, The Philadelphia Story, and Anatomy of a Murder. But at Christmas time, can you possibly beat It's a Wonderful Life? I love that movie. In fact, our family just watched it the other night. Now, if you're not familiar, allow me to fill you in because Jimmy Stewart plays George Bailey, a man who spent his entire life giving up his own personal dreams in order to be a blessing to so many people in his community. For example, when he was 12 years old, he saved his younger brother Harry from drowning. Later, he prevents a distraught pharmacist, Mr. Gower, from accidentally poisoning a child. As a young man who's ready to head off to college and travel the world, his dad suddenly dies. So George makes the selfless decision to give up his own dreams to work at the town's building and loan, inherited from his father, and does incredible things, including building an entire subdivision, Bailey Park, with all these simple modern places which enable good people to have homes of their own. That's how the movie starts, with a glorious review of George Bailey's life. And why is that? Well, because George is in a ton of financial trouble and is actually thinking about committing suicide. So the whole town is praying for George Bailey. And God hears those prayers, and he calls in a guardian angel, Clarence. And Clarence's sole job is to save George Bailey. But if he's such a great guy, you might be asking, why in the world is he thinking about committing suicide? Well, because, as I said, he's the owner and operator of the town's building and loan. And on Christmas Eve, as the town was preparing a hero's welcome for his brother Harry, who's coming home from the war, Billy, who is George's absent-minded uncle, goes to the bank to deposit $8,000 of the building and loan's money, which is absolutely essential to keep it afloat. And remember, this is 1945, so $8,000 is a ton of money. Well, Uncle Billy accidentally loses the money, which George knows will certainly result in a big scandal and criminal charges. So George is in a terrible dilemma. And he starts thinking that his life might actually be worth more, so a greater blessing to others if he decides to commit suicide (laughs) rather than living. Here's my point in telling this story. Because this is, in fact, by far the low point in the movie. I mean, you can feel the weight of George's situation. Because it's absolutely terrible. He's lived such a great life, been a faithful, kind, noble, honest, selfless man. But he's in big trouble. And you can, you can feel it. But what that does is allow you to glory all the more in the redemption that takes place just moments after George regains clarity on the most important things in life because he ultimately runs home to his wife and his kids. And what does he find when he gets home? 
he finds the whole town, meaning the entire town of Bedford Falls, including the bank inspector, all gathered at his house with his family and all giving money generously to love and serve and sacrifice and bail out good old George Bailey. So you have to experience the sorrow in order to glory in the celebration. You have to experience the contemplation of death in order to appreciate the blessing of life. You have to experience, if you will, the valley of rejection in order to appreciate the mountaintop of acceptance. And that's exactly where we're going this morning as we continue our Christmas sermon series, because we've already considered the divine word, the reality that Jesus is God, but this morning we're gonna face the fact that Jesus is also the rejected word, and that he had to be rejected so that we could be accepted. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter one. John chapter 1 is on page 886. My outline is in the bulletin. It's on green paper instead of gray paper. Don't let that throw you off. Okay, John chapter 1, page 886. Follow along as I read John chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6, the start of our text this morning. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. So immediately, we're introduced to John. Now, for clarity, this is not the Apostle John, but John the Baptist. And we're told some pretty incredible things about John. For starters, look at verse 6. It says that he's sent from God. So that's pretty amazing. I mean, how many people in the Bible can you think of who are described like that, as being sent from God? There's Jesus maybe angels, anyone else? If there are, he's still in pretty good company being sent from God, but he's sent for a purpose, isn't he? In just three verses, we're told three times that he's here to bear witness to the light. Verse seven, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Verse eight clarifies he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And that light is obviously Jesus. We know that from verse nine. So God sent John to bear witness to the one true light of the world, namely Jesus. 
How exactly does John the Baptist do that specifically in the Gospel of John? Well, he does so through proclamation. So John's recorded as declaring three glorious truths about Jesus, right? Number one, he declares the way of the Lord. Number two, he declares Jesus is the Lamb of God. And then number three, he declares Jesus is the Son of God. If you would, skip down to verse 19. We'll walk through them. Verse 19 says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, here's what John says. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So John the Baptist is obviously a forerunner to the Lord Jesus. So he's out front, he's sent from God, but he's sent on a mission to declare the way of the Lord. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, it means he's here to let everyone know in advance so that nobody's surprised that the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, is on his way, that he's coming. So a good way to think about John the Baptist would be to compare him to a motorcade of some very important government dignitary or famous person. So the motorcade's out front, right? That's what you see at first. All the police officers on their motorcycles with all the the flashing lights, then all the cop cars, then all the black tinted out sport utility vehicles, and then finally at the end, the one long black limousine with the VIP, the very important person in the back waving out the window. So John's the motorcade. He's here announcing Not just that some very important person is coming, some government dignitary, but instead God himself in the flesh. Verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. But he doesn't just proclaim Christ's coming, he also identifies Jesus when he arrives. And he declares that he's both the Lamb of God and the Son of God. Look down at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Skip down to verse 34. John also says, And I have seen him, and I have borne witness of him, that this is the Son of God. And is this a once and done kind of thing? Absolutely not. John does this over and over, day after day. Why do I say that? Well, because verse 19 says this is the testimony of John. Then verse 29 tells us the next day he declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then look at verse 35. The next day, John says it again, right as Jesus walks by. Right? He, he tells them, behold, there he is, the Lamb of God. So there's no way to be surprised here. Because day after day, time after time, John just keeps proclaiming the same glorious truths that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and that Jesus is the Son of God. 
So it's A, the proclamation of John, over and over. One nonstop, unchanging declaration that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, it's helpful to know that there is some debate about which lamb John is talking about here. But I'm convinced that he's talking about the Passover lamb from Exodus chapter 12. Now, why do I say that? Well, because of the context. Remember John's summary statement in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So here's the question. What's the greatest sign in the entire Old Testament? It's the Exodus. And how exactly were the people delivered from death and slavery? The Passover lamb. I mean, do you remember that story? I hope that you do. I preached on it like two weeks ago. Like, if you can't remember that, like, we should have a conversation about your memory because you have other issues going on, right? You should remember that, right? The lamb dies as a substitute for the people. So John is bringing all of that imagery to John chapter 1, verse 29, when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Because only those covered by the blood of the Lamb, the rejected Lamb, have their sins paid for and are given His righteousness so that salvation is there, that they have the hope of eternal life. And notice how it's available to the whole world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jews and Gentiles, same thing we were just told back in John chapter 1, verse 7, that he came to bear witness about the light. Why? So that all might believe through him. So here's the question. What's the B purpose of John's proclamation? It's that all people everywhere, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, old and young, male and female, black and white, all people everywhere might believe in Jesus, that he truly is the Son of God and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So nothing has changed because that's exactly what we're doing right now. That's the same truth that we're proclaiming through this Christmas sermon series, declaring that Jesus really is the Son of God, that God became man and dwelt among us, that God became a little baby, born in a manger, born in Bethlehem, 100% God, 100% man, so that he might be an adequate substitute for our sins. Beloved, behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. I appeal to you not to reject him, but to receive him as both Lord and Savior. One more thing you need to realize about John the Baptist 
Because he not only proclaims the message of Jesus, he actually serves as a pattern for Jesus. So if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 6, verse 17. Mark chapter 6, verse 17, page 841, as we consider the pattern of John. Mark chapter 6, verse 17. I know I'm picking it up in the middle of a story a bit, but... Mark 6, verse 17. It says, For it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So notice, Herod is married to his brother's wife, which is obviously sinful. Verse 18 For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him to be put to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Verse 29. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now let me just ask, when you hear that last verse, verse 29, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb, who do you think of? You think of Jesus. So John is clearly a forerunner to Jesus, but he's a forerunner in more ways than you realize. Because it's not just in the proclamation of Jesus, but in his entire pattern of life. I mean, just think for a moment about this passage. Because John's preaching a message of repentance, right? He's saying, Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So essentially, repent of your wickedness, which was obviously offensive to both Herod and Herodias, but Jesus also preached the message of repentance, which was offensive to the scribes and the Pharisees. John's message got him arrested, imprisoned, and killed at the hands of a wicked man who absolutely knew he was completely innocent, but was too fearful to oppose the crowd and do anything about it. Jesus' message got him arrested, imprisoned, and killed. In fact, as early as Mark 3, the Pharisees conspired to kill him. And ultimately, their plan worked, and he stood before who? Pontius Pilate, 
who absolutely knew he was completely innocent, even offered up Barabbas in his place. But when the crowd yelled, crucify him, crucify him, he was too fearful to do anything about it. And John's death, his disciples came, took the body, laid it in a tomb. After Jesus' death, his disciples came, took the body, and laid it in a tomb. After John's buried, the rumors spread that he's been raised from the dead. But after Jesus is buried, he actually does rise from the dead. Do you see what I'm saying? John is clearly the forerunner to Jesus, not only in the proclamation of Jesus, but in his entire pattern of life, which points so clearly to the Lord Jesus. So with that, let's transition from number one, witness to the light, to number two, the coming of the light. Back to John chapter one. The apostle John makes it so crystal clear that John the Baptist is not the light. Look at verse eight. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light, both in his proclamation and in his pattern of life. But verse nine, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world, notice, did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. The Apostle John is showing us that no one had an excuse for rejecting Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, because of the universal language that he's using, starting with verse 7, that all might believe through him. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone. Then verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world, the entire world, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, boys and girls, essentially all people everywhere did not know him. Now just think about that with regard to John the Baptist. Because as we've seen, we've got this faithful proclamation of Jesus the next day, the next day, the next day, every day he's proclaiming faithful proclamation of Jesus along with this clear pattern of Jesus. So all these people right here in the text have no excuse for not knowing that this Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. Picture in your mind's eye a teacher I recognize that some of you are home from college and the last thing you want to picture in your mind's eye is a teacher. But just for a moment, picture in your mind's eye a teacher. And this teacher informs their students every single day for three months that they're going to have a huge, massive final exam on December 17th. So the students have heard the same announcement for 50 plus days, every day, they hear the same announcement. You're going to have a big massive final exam on December 17th. Every day, 50 plus days, they hear that announcement. But on the day of the final, as the teacher is handing out the test, a few of the students say, hey, wait a minute. Why didn't you tell us we were going to have a big final exam today? 
If we had only known that in advance, we would have prepared. We would have studied. We would have been ready for the exam. What would you say to those students? You would say, you have no excuse. Why is that? Because there has been plenty of warning. So no one should be surprised. The teacher declared the way of the exam, just like John the Baptist declared the way of the Lord, so that no one could possibly say, why didn't you tell us he was coming? He did. And here he is, the Lord Jesus, verse 9, the true light of the world. Now, what exactly does that mean, that Jesus is the true light? I mean, is the Apostle John trying to contrast true light versus false light? I don't think so. Instead, I think he's talking about the representative versus the real, or the shadow versus the substance. For example, a picture of water can certainly represent water, but it can't possibly satisfy a thirsty person. In the same way, plastic fruit represents real fruit, but only real fruit tastes any good. I actually know that from personal experience when I was a kid. Right? Plastic fruit, even though it's true fruit, is only representative fruit. So it's not the real thing. It's not the substance. It's just a representative. Now just think about that with regard to John the Baptist. Because John was not the light. But he came to bear witness to the light, the true light, the Lord Jesus. So his light was only a representative light. It was only a derivative light, like the difference between the sun and the moon. As many of you know, the moon does not shine on its own, but instead it reflects the light of the sun. In the same way, Jesus is the one true light of the world which is the substance and the source of all spiritual light for absolutely everyone, all people everywhere. And John knew it. That's why he says, verse 27, the strap of his sandal, I'm not worthy to untie. Verse 33, I baptize with water, but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 30, I must decrease, and he must increase. So Jesus is the true light of the world. And John the Baptist considered himself privileged to proclaim him. That's B, proclamation of the true light, that Jesus is the light of the world, which is exactly what Jesus says, John 8, 12. Listen very carefully to what he says. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. That imagery is so helpful. Not walking in darkness, but having the light of life. 
And it's used all over the Gospel of John to help us understand that Jesus is not talking about physical light here, but instead he's talking about spiritual light, spiritual life, spiritual understanding for who he is and what he came to accomplish. For example, flip forward to John chapter 3, verse 1. Just one page forward. John chapter 3, verse 1. No doubt many of you know this story. Jesus is interacting with the Pharisee Nicodemus. Look at what the text says, John 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus when? By night. Why does Nicodemus come by night? Well, because he's in spiritual darkness. So he's not understanding who Jesus is or what's required to be reconciled to God or how to go to heaven when he dies. That's why Jesus says to him, look at verse six. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. But Nicodemus doesn't get it, does he? Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Here it is, Nicodemus. Pay attention, spiritual light, spiritual life, spiritual understanding. Look at what he says. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What exactly is Jesus doing for good old Nicodemus here? He's proclaiming the glory of true light, that the Lord Jesus himself must be rejected, must be killed, must be crucified. Just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Here's a great question. Why in the world would anyone not receive this glorious gift? The Son of Man will be lifted up. Receive him, accept him, believe in him, and what do you get? You get eternal life. Why wouldn't you believe in him? Jesus tells us. Same conversation, same man, same effort to bring clarity, understanding, and light to a man who's walking in spiritual darkness. Look at what he says, verse 19. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light. 
because their works were evil. Jesus is saying that people are inherently wicked, that they're naturally sinful. And therefore, they love the darkness rather than the light. Again, the imagery is so helpful because what happens in the darkness? Only that which is wrong and wicked and evil. In fact, Paul says in Romans 13, 12, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light and let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Why? Because those are all deeds of the darkness. But let me just tell you, the greatest deed of darkness, it's number three, the rejection of the light. So witness to the light, coming of the light now, the rejection of the light. If you would look again, flip back to John chapter one, verses nine to 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. Now I want you to feel the weight of verse 12. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him. What does it mean to receive him? It's to believe in his name. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So A, the pattern of Jesus' rejection. Jesus came to his own meaning he came to his own people. He came to the Jewish people, and his own people rejected him. We've already seen this pattern through the life and death of John the Baptist, so we're not surprised by it at all, and yet we should be totally surprised by it. Jesus was rejected his entire life, starting the moment he was born. I mean, what happens to Jesus as soon as Jesus is born? Right, that's right. Matthew chapter two, the Christmas story. King Herod is absolutely furious that there's a competing king, literally out of his mind. So he has all the baby boys, two years old and under, murdered in the entire town of Bethlehem. Why? Just to try to get Jesus. Does it stop there? Of course not. Instead, when Jesus starts his earthly ministry, he performs all sorts of signs and wonders. Why? To demonstrate that he really is God, that he really is the light of the world so that people might believe. He even goes to his family and his friends in his own hometown. How does that go? Not well. They reject him. Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own household. In fact, Mark 6, 6 says that Jesus marveled. Why did Jesus marvel? He marveled 
because of their unbelief. Does it stop there? Of course not. Many rejected him, specifically over his teaching. John chapter six, again, Jesus proclaiming spiritual light, spiritual life, spiritual understanding. What does he say? He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How did they respond to that? John chapter six, they reject him. They say these things are too hard, too complicated. Who can listen to him? Who can possibly believe in him? Does it stop there? Of course not. Judas, the scribes, the Pharisees, Pontius Pilate, the entire Roman army, who, by the way, arrest Jesus. When do they arrest Jesus? At night. Because they're in spiritual darkness. You could easily summarize Jesus' entire life as one continual growing, escalating conflict which ends in a climax of human rejection where his disciples deny him, the Jewish leaders convict him, and they send him off to Pontius Pilate who knows that he's innocent but rejects him nonetheless and then hands him over to a mob which, if you will, is just one big massive rejection by the Jewish people when they yell, crucify him. Crucify him. Then the soldiers mock him, they scourge him, and they crucify him. And even the two thieves on the cross both start out rejecting him. So yes, I think it's fair to say rejection is a major theme of Jesus' life. Why is that? Because Jesus is the rejected word. But all of that has a reason, doesn't it? I mean, that's why we celebrate Christmas, isn't it? Because B, the purpose for Jesus' rejection is right here in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But that glorious gift to be children of God required that he first be rejected before we could ever be accepted. Do you see, you have to understand the bad news before you can ever get to the glory of the good news. And here's what I mean by that. Here's the worst news of all. There is one rejection that stands greater than the rest of them. And that's the rejection Jesus endured from God the Father, the rejection that was absolutely necessary for our salvation. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, which is why God the Father had to reject God the Son. What I want you to know and understand this morning is that all of that was already known before Jesus was ever born. That's the glory of Matthew 121. God told Joseph, Joseph, before Jesus was ever born, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's no way to celebrate Christmas without looking to Easter. The reality that Jesus was rejected so that we might be accepted, that he died so that we might have life. 
If you're here this morning and you don't yet know this Jesus, I hope and pray that you would not reject him this Christmas season, but instead that you would accept him, that you would repent of your sins and that you would believe in him. Because when you do, the glorious promise of verse 12 becomes yours, that you might become a child of God that you might be joyfully welcomed into God's family, that you might be invited to sit at God's table, that you might be promised the glorious gift of the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. I appeal to you. Accept him. Embrace him. Come out of the darkness and walk in the light. How do you come out of the darkness and walk in the light? By believing in him by resting in him, by trusting him, and by following him. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, my encouragement for you this Christmas season is to walk as children of light because that's who you are. You're children of light. Ephesians 5.8 says that at one time you were darkness. Remember that this Christmas season? So helpful to remember that's who I was. I was darkness. That's who you were. You were darkness. But now, He says, you are light. You are light in the Lord. Therefore, because you are light, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and pleasing to the Lord. Dear believer, the clear call of Scripture is for you to believe in the light and for you to walk as children of light, doing that which is good and right and true and pleasing to God, keeping his commandments and walking in his ways. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, let your light shine in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Light is so wonderfully different than darkness. It's gloriously different. And it looks like something, doesn't it? Let us be those who walk as children of light, doing only that which is good and right and true and pleasing to God, that that God might be glorified as a result of our good works. And may that include this Christmas season being those who proclaim, just like John the Baptist, that the true light has certainly come. He has come. Once a babe in Bethlehem, Now the Lord of history. The true light has certainly come. And he offers light and life to all those who accept him and believe in him. Let us proclaim that the light has come so that others might come to Christ, that they might walk as children of light. You know, I started out this morning by referencing Jimmy Stewart's Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. 
which certainly highlights, right, the, the, the contrast between sorrow and celebration, the contemplation of death and the blessing of life. And it has this wonderful closing scene, marvelous scene at the end of the movie. The, the whole town gathered together, giving generously, loving, serving, and sacrificing for one another with, with joy in their hearts, with smiles on their faces. When I watched that movie this past week, here's what came to my mind. That's just a movie. But that is what the church should look like. We are children of light. We are children of God. God gave his only son so that we might be his children so that we might walk as children of light and that's what it should look like a body of believers giving generously loving serving sacrificing for one another Beloved, we are children of God. Let us walk as children of light. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, that's a wonderful life. And I pray that we would know it this morning that the Lord Jesus had to be rejected so that we might be accepted, so that we might be children of God who are enabled and empowered by the gift of the Spirit to walk as children of light. Father, I pray that in all that we do this Christmas season, that the world around us that's dead and dying and in darkness might see light. Let us walk as light. Let us proclaim the light because we are children of God. Father, do that good work for our good and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.